Okay, good start. Uh, so we will be focusing on chapter eight of the colonial Marxism, or problems of third world development. And um, a lot of the key points, well, also the points in this chapter is talking about the dynamics of underdevelopment in the third world and how the promise of development under capitalism is a dead end for the third world countries. Uh, one of the key quotes here is um, when he says, I would suggest that if we're talking about the problems of development in the third world, the major problem is the United States of America because it crowns the whole structure of world imperialism. Uh, this is quite self-evident in that uh, after, after World War II, the United States became the, uh, the leader of um, capitalist imperialism, and it has been its role to obstruct any sort of meaningful development in the third world. Uh, and that's what goes on today, uh, using the kind of economic weapons we talked about last week, such as sanctions or blockade. Uh, next slide. So these are the ways in which imperialism results in the underdevelopment of the third world. On equal trade, the, move, uh, the movement of capital, which has always been on balance from the external or peripheral sectors of the imperialist economy to the epicenters. This is uh, the, extract, this, the, the extraction of natural resources. Uh, number three, the blockage of technology. Number four, the idea that imperialism has restructured the world so that within the third world, there is no cohesion to respect production and exchange. And number five, the political facets of imperialism meaning the Prado bourgeoisie class that exists in third world countries. They only exist in order to facilitate the exploitation of the of, of their of the respective countries. Next slide. Now on the on the case of how to measure underdevelopments, uh, we can't really just apply tools of Western bourgeois measurements, especially that of uh, neoclassical economics, which focuses on things like growth rates or GDP. Again, that, those, that, that's all important, but they do, they do not paint a, an accurate picture of development in the third world. You know, um, you, can, you can have high GDP growth as much as you want, but that doesn't translate to uh, actual material change in the lives of the majority of the country, then it's it's very unimportant. In the case of uh, Africa, from the early 2000s to around 2010, there was um, a lot of news about the development of like the high growth of lots of African countries, countries like Ghana or Ethiopia, talking about the high rate of GDP growth. Uh, for the most part, that growth failed to materialize in any meaningful 
change whether it, uh, for the majority of the country. You know, we look at what things like you know education, healthcare, things that actually are important for the masses of the country. It didn't translate that that GDP growth didn't translate to any change in those in those metrics. Uh, so, so you know this is and and Rodney mentioned something like this when he says um more important is the fact that this criteria you know talking about Western Bourgeois measurement where they are satisfied do not lead to anything that the people of the country would call development. Hence the rise of the term growth without development. Uh, next slide. Uh, <clears throat> he goes on to explain about, uh, about, about the idea of the branch plant economy when he says imperialism has been able to circumvent the criticism that it reduces the third world to primary production. The international bourgeoisie and their agents have been able to start industrialization of the sort within third world countries. Today, it is not considered opportune merely to produce in the United States and Germany, but to sell abroad. More markets can be explored by setting up the branch plants in Brazil, in Singapore, in Ivory, in, in Ivory Coast, and so forth. Um, what it's basically talking about is that imperialism has evolved, and it's not just it's not just condemned part of the world to producing uh, producing uh, natural resources or extracting or exporting agricultural goods. There are certain zones in the world in which in which industrialization is has been permitted to occur. Uh, but however, this isn't development because this industrialization is still subservient. It's the classes that these industrialization produce are still subservient to the international bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie that are still subservient to um, imperialism. And there's a, there's a great book written by Intan Sunwandi who explains this phenomenon, which is something that's been happening in Southeast Asia in countries like Indonesia, uh, she has uh, she a book called um, Value Chains, The New Economic Imperialism. I'm going to put that in the, in the chat. Um, so yeah, but, uh, basically the, this industrialization is not a form of development for, for these countries, that uh, the conditions in these sort of you know, factories and uh, are still incredibly substandard. The expectation of workers is uh, very, very intensive. And uh, this is only an extension of, of an extension of uh, dualism. Next slide. Uh, now, the, so the only solution <clears throat> possible for these other countries, the only solution possible for progressives ranging from Marxists to socialists, communists, are uh, the only solution for them is delinking. Um, what already states progressives residing within third world countries, virtually without exception, now pose a problem of economic development in terms of disengagement. How do you break with the dominant imperialist system? 
The solution lies in disengaging and disentangling from the historical bonds. In other words, if the answer is not in further engagement, if it is not in aid, if it is not in increasing, increasing one traditional exports, if it is not merely in import substitution, then it will slide in terms of rebuilding one economy so that it becomes a logical integrated whole. It must lie in terms of creating linkages between third world economies. And this idea of the linking is obviously something that uh, was the, one of the main ideas uh, expanded upon by Samir Amin and a lot of other, uh, a lot of other global south Police economists who wrote in the who wrote and currently writes in the dependency theory stream. The idea that the only rules for development lies in breaking the bonds of of uh, of, in, of the imperial system, meaning that there should be more uh, there should be more links between south south economies. Now. Um, of course, you guys have heard of, of BRICS, and there's been debate whether this of this organization is an example of what people like what Rodney or Samemi are talking about. Uh, so, like one shouldn't a country in thought was seeking to develop shouldn't base its development on the interest of countries in the global north, countries in the in the metro in in in, in, in Europe and North America. They have to chart their own paths, and chart, and this is impossible. Personally, I think it's impossible with the current capitalist class in those in those third world countries. Next slide. Rodney goes on explaining and says, with respect to tackling the problem of power. There's required more detailed social analysis than merely saying that we have, on, on the one hand, the enemy who are the metropolitan capitalists, and on the other hand, the exported third world. Nationalist movements, almost by definition, tended to obscure and prepare over the kinds of internal contradictions that existed in societies. It very often came as a shock to realize that the internal contradictions were playing a much more crucial and determining role. So the third world intellectuals who may have taken a progressive orientation coming from a Marxist framework still found themselves unable to understand their own society. To the extent that they failed to distinguish between the tools that they acquired from abroad and the conclusions that they were introducing. This is just the standard argument of Marxist not, of Marxist not falling to the rhetoric of nationalism that we should be able to identify internal contradictions that exist in our societies, that the third world as a whole is not a, just not a massive blob with no contradictions, that there exist classes in those societies that are against the building of socialism. Uh, next slide. And one of these internal contradictions that are an obstacle towards the development yeah, towards the development of of socialism is the petty bourgeoisie, uh, which Rodney states about saying 
one of the target social groups readily identified as having its own peculiarities is the person. The personnel who controls the reins of power undoubtedly adhere to the northern valley of the bourgeoisie in the metropoles. They do, but they do not control any capital formations. At best, they own two or three houses and they own one Mercedes Benz plus a Volkswagen and so forth. But these are not capitalists. The most formulated position that allows us to see the dependency of this class, its roots in the international bourgeoisie, and the peculiarities which develop from that. I refer, I, I myself prefer to portray them as a stratum within the international capitalist class, a stratum serving the international capitalist class. Uh, this is a passage that I think is actually a bit dated. Um, the description of the petit bourgeoisie does not, uh, in, does not really match to what they are right now. Though, you know, in, I guess the, the, the term we would use now, you know, the comparable bourgeoisie are not just people who own two or three houses. In the, in, in federal countries, they do control capital and they are quite influential, although they still are subservient in the, to the international capitalist class. But for me, I think, you know, um, if Rodney was writing this today, he would change some of the descriptions. Next slide. And then we come to Rodney's critique of neocolonialism. Uh, give, give an example in, 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 in Guyana, setting Bob's Burn in Guyana began some years ago by trying to convince some folk that he was about nationalism and even about socialism. But after just a few years, the mask had, has been removed. And it's now apparent that Burnham, aiming at political intimidation and assassinations, this and other indications indication suggest that neocolonialism is not merely a state, but like all historical forms, it has its own motion and both politically and economically, motion is in a negative direction. So this is uh, something that's been very, very common in third countries, especially in the early days of post-independence. You know, a lot of them use rhetoric in order to deceive the working and peasant classes. They use rhetoric talking about, um, talking about, uh, about socialism and national independence, uh, national liberation but their practical policies uh, contradict that. It shows that they are only neo-colonial states, they are only agents of capitalist imperialism. Next slide. Now, uh, this conclusion from all this is quite optimistic as was living in a time in which there were ongoing attempts to Construct socialism. It goes on saying, uh, I am not at all pessimistic about the long term prospects for liberation and development in the third world. The propping up of regimes by imperialism is a short term solution. That is what would maintain the initiative towards change and propel the third world after the counter revolutionary phase, which arose after formal independence. The working class in the metropoles is more confused, more alienated, and less in control of their own destiny than the peasants in the African countryside and the workers on plantations. 
the latter do not have any crumbs or fruits that have been thrown to them to increase their confusion. Uh, what this means is that this is basically that for workers in the third world, especially in Africa, the idea that the, that the famous slogan, you know, like they have nothing to do with their chains, still rings true for them. It doesn't ring true for the American worker who's been given health insurance and other, other forms of social welfare due to the fruits of, uh, of imperialist extraction from the third world. But for, for, for the peasants in the African countryside and miners in Latin America and in other parts of the world, this, this is still true. They still have, for the most part, nothing to lose by their change. Next slide. And uh, Rodney also mentions about the possible role of China in, in all this. Um, he states, on reflecting on the problem of third world development, I recall an incident months ago when the Republic of China, sorry, when the Republic of Guinea was invaded by the Portuguese. As soon as the Chinese heard about the invasion, the Xinhua news agency put out a report denouncing American imperialism. America's name had not been, had not as yet been called by Guineans, but the Chinese from objective analysis, he said that if the Portuguese were invading Guinea, is that something to do with American imperialism? And in like vein, I would suggest that if we are talking about problems of, of development in the third world, the major problem is the United States of America because it crowns the whole structure of world imperialism. He also references the Tanzania Zambia railway, which was built, which is built along with, with, with the aid of Chinese workers and Chinese engineers. And it was a great example of third world, third world solidarity. He explains the whole history of this railway is one in which metropolitan countries set out to interfere with the movement of this particular African technology to a whole to a part of the, of the third world. And they failed because in this instance, the People's Republic of China was available as an alternative source. So basically, during uh, this was so basically during this uh, this railway was um, Tanzania and Zambia offered or requested aid help from the the West to help them build this railway in order to increase trade between both, both of these countries. They refused and they sought out aid from the Chinese. And this was under Mao Zedong and they sent workers and engineers and side by side, African workers and Chinese workers to help build this railway, which stands as a symbol of the of the, of the potential of the achievements that thought what solidarity can produce. Uh, next slide. Okay, I can <laughs> take it from here. Thanks, Chris. Um, so chapter nine is slavery and other development. And Rodney writes that in, eva in evaluating the two connected concepts of slavery and underdevelopment, the principal emphasis must necessarily be on underdevelopment Slavery as institution, as epoch, as mode of production acquires its significance in this formulation through an awareness of the implications of inequality and dependence in the modern world. So basically, 
this chapter is going to focus on how slavery, as we previously discussed, played a significant role in underdevelopment, but more specifically, its context in contemporary debates around the rise of capitalism and the perpetuation of dependency in particular. And he, he to that end, argues that against the backdrop of the considerable advance in theoretical and scientific work on underdevelopment, one might resume in a new way the long established debate on the role of slavery. So kind of taking a retrospective view on the issue of slavery with the benefit of dependency theory and underdevelopment scholarship. So he's asking a central question throughout, what role did slavery play in capitalist development or underdevelopment? And he's arguing that the creation of a world system involved the realization of surplus and its extraction from all regions within the ambit of capital. This meant not merely the extension of economic activity from one continent to another, but also I think this is a very important point, the juxtaposition of several different social formations and modes of production articulated in such a way as to secure the dominance of capitalist relations, as well as the transfer of values to the capitalist classes in the court areas. So basically saying that the rise of capitalism didn't necessarily need the entire world to be subsumed under free wage labor or proletarian status, but could actually exist within a juxtaposition of slavery and free wage proletarian labor in Europe coexisting and reinforcing one another. And he argues that the slavery which existed in the Americas between the 16th and the 19th centuries coexisted with other modes of production in Europe, Africa, and America. These were articulated to constitute a system with one, the accumulation of capital, two, new forms of combining and organizing capital, three, qualitative leaps in the production of technology, four, the development of the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, and five, a strengthening of the state and other basic social institutions. And I think this is a really important chapter specifically with these points because so often in bourgeois, as well as in some Marxist scholarship, which we'll discuss in a bit, there's a downplaying of the role of slavery in developing capitalism itself and in the role of basically contributing to the rise of the West globally. But Rodney's very clear in saying that slavery coexisted with the rise of, of proletarian labor in Europe. It enabled it in some respects and specifically it enabled the system to accumulate capital and begin to organize itself and create a more significant constitution of productive relations that could develop capitalism and reinforce it over time. And to that end, Rodney's basically arguing that slavery played a key role in the primitive accumulation of capital itself. He says that whenever the subject has been explored, it emerges that Africa was historically indispensable to the leading class forces in Europe, the feudal landed classes who participated in overseas expansion would have been unable to renew themselves in the form of quasi-feudal plantations and land grants, and the nascent capitalist class needed the new world to redress the social balance in the old. They did this by integrating the Americas into a network of financial market relations dominated by themselves in the metropolitan centers. Africa also helped to extend the market for cheap European manufacturers and to strengthen the techniques of guaranteeing capital and credit. But of course, Africa's key role was a supplier of labor, for which there were no alternatives at the time. And I think this is a pretty clear argument that even in the rise of capitalism within feudalism, within the internal contradictions of feudalism that produced free proletarian labor and capitalism itself, slavery was a key part of that engagement with Africa and 
you know, the early colonial trade networks that were predominantly on the basis of exploitation and extraction, particularly of labor, as he says, um, and in the early period of enslavement is exactly what kind of preempted and catalyzed a network of financial market relations that would then expand into capitalism on a European continental scale and globally, of course, at the same time. And it's interesting to see that Rodney is really responding to the claims of many Eurocentric Marxists at this time. One that we can particularly highlight is Robert Brenner, who puts forward the Brenner thesis. This is basically an argument that was laid out in 1977 in an article in New Left Review, where Brenner argued that the beginning of capitalism was exclusively limited to Europe. It was on a, a continental basis within Europe. It was produced out of the contradictions of feudalism exclusively and didn't have any role uh, of slavery or colonial expansion. And he basically does that to argue against two thinkers we'll come to in a second uh, within world systems and dependency theory, who he says are neo-Smithian Marxists uh, because they believe trade is the only role, uh, played the only role in the expansion of capitalism rather than what he believes is important, which is class conflict between uh, serfs and feudal landlords. But what Rodney is basically saying is that there's no consideration within that Eurocentric thesis that slavery as a system outside of the European, uh, broader European internal class relations was what was preempting in many cases, the rise of a merchant's capitalist class that would then consolidate its power over the, the corpse of dying feudalism and then implement capitalism. And this is specifically uh, Brenner criticizing uh, Wallerstein and Amin, uh, as well as Andre Gunder Frank. And Rodney obviously cites the two of them quite favorably because they have had writings and considerations that show the opposite of this Eurocentric thesis. Uh, Wallerstein argues that essentially Europe needed a source of labor from Africa uh, from a reasonably well-populated region that was accessible and relatively near the region of usage. And that would have been in the context of the transatlantic slave trade uh, moving to the Americas and the plantation system in the Caribbean, exactly the use of West Africa from the perspective of European capitalists. And he says it has to be a region which was outside of Europe's world economy, so that Europe could feel unconcerned about the economic consequences. And basically that's to say that Europe did not consider Africa at that time. There wasn't a world system as Wallerstein writes about that had expanded to the entire world. There wasn't a modern capitalist world system yet. It was still Europe's world economy internally. They could basically perceive Africa as a, uh, as what Rodney says that Africa to them was at the periphery of the periphery, it was not even incorporated into the world system or in Europe's world economy. And therefore Europe could not be concerned about demographic changes, about depopulation and the effects of the slave trade on development in Africa. They could basically just exploit it to their own benefit. And that's what enabled the rise of the modern world system. And he says, similarly with Samir Amin, only rarely did Africa supply values and labor directly to Europe. For the most part, its linkages were via the American continent. In the apt terms of Samir Amin, Africa functioned as a periphery of the American periphery. As a periphery of a periphery, Africa was raided rather than cultivated. 
So this is very clearly within the context of world systems analysis, seeing Africa's position at the time vis-a-vis -vis the European uh, the European capitalist core and the European world economy internally as nothing more than the periphery of the periphery. And Rodney's very clearly addressing, in addition to Eurocentric scholarship, the shortcomings of bourgeois scholarship. He discusses the fact that they continue to affirm that what took place in the, even calling it the slave trade and emphasizing trade, Rodney says that this trade, uh, they basically implicitly are saying it contained developmental uh, potential, which in reality it obviously didn't. And by insisting that the exchange of human beings for commodities on the coast comprised trade, the analysis directs attention away from the mode of acquiring captives, which Rodney obviously emphasizes was uh, not consensual. It was not a free trade relationship. It was obviously an exploited extractive process on behalf of Europe. And in addition to that, it saves the way for the assumption that trade always benefits both parties. That is to say the concept of comparative advantage is accepted without question. Yet all recent work on development on a world scale confirms that unequal trade is entrenched as between developed and underdeveloped countries. Uh, and this is leading to, in his context, uh, the appeal for a new international economic order, which was being proposed. I think his reference there to unequal trade is really interesting to put into context of discussions of unequal exchange and the fact that trade inherently is is an imperialistic feature, irrespective of whether we call it consensual or free trade, that there's no such process of contractual, um, legitimate uh, free relationships between Africa or between the global South and global North. And he's adding into that the idea that slavery was the first step in that process of a completely uh, non-consensual, extractive and violent phenomenon on the behalf of Europe that contributed to trade being entrenched as a, a method of imperialism itself. And he's discussing it within the context of world systems analysis, which as we've discussed, we have kind of had some introductions to it in the past, basically the discussion of uh, core semi-periphery periphery analysis. And he says that slavery began the incorporation of Africa into the periphery of the world system without any notable intrusion of capitalist forms inside Africa itself. In the Americas, slavery undoubtedly constituted one of the modes of appropriation integral to the capitalist system. So it's this kind of bifurcated motion by which slavery as a system can help expand, develop capitalism, kick it off and create the modern world system. But on the other hand, as it, it's a trade relationship, trade in quotation marks, of course, it's an underdevelopment scheme and its only impact upon Africa going back was underdevelopment, depopulation, as Rodney discussed elsewhere. In that first chapter, chapter seven, that we discussed in this section, he lays out pretty clearly what the effects of slavery were. And here, all he's saying is that that was a, he's confirming that that was part of the process of making Africa within the periphery of the world system and consolidating this world system as a whole. But this leads to a very interesting question as we've discussed throughout about the juxtaposition of different modes of production. He's engaging in the discussion on the precise relationship of slavery to capitalism and arguing that it's, it, it has gone beyond the polarization of it as either capitalist or non-capitalist. It's self-evident that slavery stood in the way of the commoditization of labor and yet the internal hierarchical structure of the slave plantation was significantly influenced by capitalist forms in Europe 
So slavery can be in this unique position of being both capitalist and non-capitalist at the same time, or some combination of the two, particularly the fact that it was a slave system within the broader capitalist world system. And he quotes a few thinkers on that idea. Hindes and Hearst argue that it's a mode of production subordinated to capitalism within the international division of labor and the world market. And the conditions of reproduction of the slave mode of production under these circumstances depend on the capitalist system. Paula Beigelman defines new world slavery as capitalist slavery. So a, a very clear point that this is a juxtaposed combined system. And Clive Thomas designates it as a colonial slave mode of production given the fact that colonialism became the mediatory structure through which the influences of emerging capitalism in Europe were transmitted. So again, all emphasizing that we can possibly, in, in a Euro-Marxist conception, could say Marx defined a process of development of slavery, feudalism, uh, capitalism. But Rodney's saying that slavery can exist side by side with capitalism. And in many ways, it can actually increase and help capitalism expand, which he argues Clearly, historically, it did. So this is really an argument within Marxism, within terminology uh, and historiography of the rise of capitalism itself, centering the presence of slavery within that development. And to that point, he says that dependency is a colonial characteristic, but it must be noted that slavery in the colonies was bound to be heavily dependent because the slave economy stood no chance of creating an internal market. Again, slavery doesn't produce development it is necessarily dependent and reliant on capitalism, reliant on Europe to expand it. Obviously, slavery stood in the way of the emergence of a wage-earning proletariat, but in addition, it also inhibited the growth of other classes and strata associated with the maturation of capitalism in the metropoles. Ex-slaves immediately assumed the role of a modern proletariat in presenting their own terms for wage and, and conditions of work. So basically saying that slavery was a system within the within the colonies and the, within the slave plantations that prevented capitalism internally from rising, but was very much able to facilitate it overseas in Europe. And at the same time, when the abolition of slavery was introduced in the new world, uh, that meant that there could be an immediate incorporation of ex-slaves into the modern proletariat uh, in terms of wage work. So there was a sort of development of capitalism internally by the fact of the abolition of slavery. And that didn't necessarily mean there was development in any context as we just discussed, but it was simply the progression beyond slavery to a point of now super exploitation as we talked about last time. And his conclusion is that research has firmly concluded that it was the plantation structure that was the key element in underdevelopment this should be modified and the emphasis shifted to the slave mode of production, colonial and capitalist, with which the plantation was first associated. And slavery was not merely one institution, but the basis of peripheral capitalism in any given territory. So essentially the argument that it was not the plantation structure itself that was the key elements in underdevelopment, it was specifically colonialism and capitalism that facilitated underdevelopment. And that's an argument that Rodney's making in terms of advancing this analysis, but also wanting to emphasize a, a Marxist perspective on it and saying that colonialism and capitalism as systemic uh, features of what's as slavery as a systemic feature of both are the systems through which underdevelopment was assured. And slavery was the very basis of that mode of peripheral capitalism anywhere all over the world.
uh, but specifically in the Americas. And we wanted to just finish off with this last quote. Uh, this is from the chapter, Chris discussed chapter eight, but I think this is good for us to focus on for our brief discussion that we're gonna do. Rodney was asked a question because these are our lectures that he was giving. Uh, he was asked the question of whether he'd consider the more important problems of imperialism to be the ones created by neocolonialism or those belonging to the old capitalist experience of imperialism, uh, which is a really good question. I think it's something that he's clearly discussing in both of these chapters related to how imperialism came to be, but also the differentiation between that and neocolonialism or even uh, a post-emancipation economy within the new world or post-colonial economy. And he argues that imperialism may be falling apart, but it's changing at the same time. The new colonialism is so difficult to decipher that one might think that one is doing something progressive and really be co-opted by the system, such as he discusses how nationalizing a plant, even in this context, is reinforcing the international division of labor and the allocation of resources. Uh, and he has this line that I love, which I think is really, really good, where he says that after all mosquitoes are today are able to cope with the DDT insecticide, Similarly, imperialism has a certain flexibility. So I love his uh, comparison of imperialism to a mosquito and its ability to repel insecticide, um, which I think is really a testament to the inflexibility uh, and overall the kind of persistence of a certain structure underneath, but at the same time, the superficial ability to reflect different changes in a political situation, such as neocolonialism itself, that imperialism can evolve over time, but remain essentially a, a system for global exploitation underneath. So we can uh, 